0: Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. I see many familiar faces in the audience, which leads me to conclude that masarchism is far more widespread in Singapore than uh, commonly thought. Anyway, thank you for coming here.
1: As I stand
0: here before you this evening, at least three different things are happening simultaneously. What I think what I say to convey what I think, which, because of the limitations of language or by design, may, will not always be the same as what I think, and what you hear and understand of what I had intended to convey, which is again not necessarily the same thing. Misunderstanding, of some degree, is inherent in all human communication, indeed all human perception. And one might call this the Rashomon Phenomenon after the title of the short story by the Japanese author Ryonosuke Akutagawa. The topic of this evening, human rights and democracy, are more than other subjects particularly susceptible to this phenomenon and anything really universal ought to be less prone to misunderstanding. And in fact, the evidence of our senses tells us that the most salient characteristic of the world we live in is diversity, not universality. Now, to explain why universality is a myth, I must beg your indulgence to recount how some of my personal experiences intersected in a minor and tangential way with international developments. And had the Institute of Policy Studies and the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy not been been so foolishly reckless as to invite me to deliver the series of lectures, I would not have inflicted my stories on anyone. They are of little inherent interest, except, I think, to explain why I came to this conclusion and in the process draw some of the traits of my previous lectures together. My focus is on human rights and democracy promotion as an element of statecraft in relations between states. I served as a junior diplomat at our Embassy in Washington, DC from 1984 to 1987. Mikhail Gorbachev had been appointed General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in 1985, but the Cold War was still quite warm and the Soviet bloc seemed on the rise. The Soviet Union had invaded and occupied Afghanistan. With Moscow's support, Vietnam had invaded and occupied Cambodia. The revolutionary Sandinistas had come to power in Nicaragua. Cuban troops were fighting in Africa. That the Cold War was in fact nearing its end and the Soviet Union would collapse only six years later was not evident at that time. At least it was not evident to me. I had never paid much attention to human rights and democracy as factors in international relations, and I do not think they played any significant role in US diplomacy during the Cold War, except perhaps as a tactic. The US has of course always seen itself as the exemplar of rights and democracy to the world. All capital letters. (laughs) But during the Cold War, this was more propaganda than policy. The key American foreign policy considerations were strategic, and if the U.S. had any qualms about pursuing policies that did not meet its own notions of human rights and democracy, it hit them well. These subjects certainly did not occupy much of my time in Washington, D.C. Our major preoccupation at the Embassy was the Vietnamese occupation of Cambodia. There was an element of our work that obliquely touched upon human rights when we had to explain why ASEAN supported a resistance coalition that included the murderous Khmer Rouge. Now, we did not deny that they had committed genocide, but we pointed out that the Chinese-backed Khmer Rouge was the most effective fighting force in the resistance And words alone would not get the Soviet supported Vietnamese out of Cambodia and give the Cambodian people an opportunity to determine their own future under UN supervised elections. Now, this was an argument that I admit, that I now admit, was a little disingenuous. (laughs) But in the context of the Cold War, I do not recall that we had much difficulty in getting officials of the Reagan administration to accept it. As I recounted in my last lecture, at one point, the US had even sided with China and the Khmer Rouge against ASEAN. And insofar as American officials were uneasy, it was about supplying non-lethal assistance to the non-communist components of the resistance. Some American officials were then still so traumatised by the Vietnam War that they imagined that supplying a few pairs of boots, some ponchos and radio sets would again lead them down a slippery slope into another quagmire. Well, There was a little more difficulty with Congress, which tends to be more purist about human rights and democracy. But there, we had the staunch support of a key member of the House of Representatives, the late Stephen Solas, who was then the Chairman of the House Asia-Pacific Subcommittee. Mr Solas was generally very liberal in his views, and I wondered why he supported us. I wondered until one of his staff explained that his district had many former refugees from the Soviet bloc they hated the soviet union and since the soviet union was supporting vietnam they were for anything that was against vietnam as the votes went so the congressmen followed and mr solas was not atypical in the philippines the marcos regime was under pressure after the assassination of benigno aquino the current Philippine president's father in 1983. He was assassinated as he came back to Manila. People's power eventually forced Marcos to flee the Philippines in 1986. Still, our main concern, and the main concern of the Reagan administration, was what Marcos's fall after 20 years in power would mean for the stability of the Philippines and the stability of Southeast Asia and not primarily as an opportunity for the promotion of democracy. In 1987, human rights was briefly forced upon my attention by the necessity of dealing with the fallout when a group of lay Catholic social workers, returned overseas graduates and radical theatre enthusiasts, were arrested in Singapore under the Internal Security Act. But this was really to help the administration cope with pressures from NGOs and their supporters in Congress. To our friends in the administration, this was just a distraction from the strategic issues of the day. And we had to do our bit by running interference, this is an American football term, by running interference to help keep the administration focused. But by the end of my term in the U.S., events were moving more quickly and with greater significance than anyone could have foreseen. Certainly, I did not foresee them. Gorbachev had introduced glasnost, was attempting perestroika, and overcoming, overcoming initial skepticism, was taking important steps to improve relations with the West. In 1986, the U.S. and the Soviet Union had reached a major understanding on nuclear weapons, arms control, at the Reykjavik Summit. The same year, the Geneva Accords set a timetable for the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan. And as the Cold War wound down, events began to break in East Asia as well. In 1987, martial law was lifted in Taiwan. That same year, mirroring events the previous year in the Philippines, when Marcos was pushed out of power, student demonstrations pushed President Chun Hwan from power in South Korea. And even I, obtuse as I may be, began to sense something was shifting in US attitudes towards human rights and democracy. But at that time, I sensed it only very dimly and incoherently. It was not until 1988, after I returned to Singapore and found myself peripherally involved in the expulsion of an American diplomat stationed in Singapore, one Hank Hendrickson, that it clearly dawned on me what had changed. Now, remember this. Singapore had been consistent in supporting the US presence in Southeast Asia at least as consistent, if not more so, than former US allies Thailand and the Philippines. We had done so even when it was unfashionable during the Vietnam War, when the US was in dire need of Asian political support. Of course, we had volunteer support because it was in our interest, but it was a calculation of interest we need not have made. For example, notwithstanding the so-called special relationship, even the British were half-hearted in their support for the Vietnam War. And it was a calculation that was not without domestic risks for the government. After the Hendrickson affair broke, I recall Mr Lee Kuan Yew saying that the U.S. should not assume that our ground was naturally in support of America. In other words, it was a choice that the Singapore government made and having made, had to politically sustain. And it was not unreasonable to expect that the U.S. government would help and not hinder us. And yet here was an accredited diplomat from a friendly country with the support and encouragement of his immediate state department superiors and in defiance of all diplomatic practice enshrined in international law in the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, enthusiastically promoting opposition to the BAP government, promising shelter and succour to his chosen ones if they ran into trouble. Clearly, advancing human rights and democracy was now American policy and not just propaganda. It was an interest that the U.S. considered central enough to risk a long-nurtured and mutually beneficial relationship. Why? It was not as if they wished us ill. I was acquainted with Mr. Hendrickson and his State Department Superiors. I was sure they were not our enemies. They did what they did simply because we did not fit neatly into their theories of political development. And now that the Cold War was ending, they saw an opportunity to nudge us in the direction that the Philippines, South Korea and Taiwan had taken. In other words, in their minds, they were doing us a favour. Now, I do not think it, it was a mistake to have supported the US then and to continue to support the US now. But there was a lesson to be drawn from this episode. The lesson is not that the US was ungrateful. Gratitude is not a concept that is greatly relevant to the understanding of international affairs. If you expect gratitude in international relations, adopt a dog and name it foreign policy. (laughs) The relevant concept is interest. Interests change and they do not change to suit our conveniences. It is therefore vital to try the best we can, to look over the horizon and see what is coming. I decided to study human rights and democracy more closely than I had hitherto done to try to better understand their evolving role in post-Cold War geopolitics. In 1992, I wrangled a three-month sabbatical at one of the older British universities. The first, most valuable, and enduring lesson I learnt was from the dawn assigned to guide my studies. Although it was perhaps not the lesson he would have chosen to imp- or intended to impart. Now he was a very distinguished historian of Southeast Asia, with a contemporary interest in human rights in what was then known as Burma and East Timor. So immensely learned that he had probably forgotten more about our region than I would ever hope to learn. But the Southeast Asia he talked to me about, and he spoke very eruditely and with great passion about human rights and democracy in our region, the Southeast Asia he spoke about seemed to me to to bear little relationship to the place I actually lived in And had dealt with in my previous work as director for Southeast Asia in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. We met only once. I never went back to see him again, and he never asked to see me again. (laughs) It was probably for the best. The lesson I took away from this encounter was simple. When thinking about human rights and democracy, conviction, conviction with a capital C, however fervent, and authority with a capital A, however majestic, are not the same things as practicality or even reality. Common sense, you may think, but this is an idea that is akin to heresy in the human rights community, which too often confuses feeling good with doing good. I began this lecture by pointing out that the shade of Rashomon Constantly lurks about talk about human rights and democracy, making it particularly susceptible to misunderstanding. So please, please do not misunderstand me. Let me state my position plainly and unequivocally. I am not against human rights. I think human rights are one of the most important ideas that the human species has ever invented. What I am skeptical about, deeply skeptical, is what I have termed, the myth of universality. The assumption that when we speak about rights or democracy, we will all always mean the same thing, just because we use the same words, and that the same words will always be applicable in the same way everywhere. The myth of universality is what I called in the first of these lectures, a false framework an ontological device into which we try to force a stubbornly elusive and ever-shifting reality in order to comfort ourselves with the illusion of comprehension. I argue that resorting to false frameworks in the more than usually ambiguous and uncertain post-Cold War times that we are experiencing is dangerous. And this particular false framework is perhaps more dangerous than others because human rights and democracy seem to be the one reliable fixed point of reference in an age without definition. No country has rejected the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Since the Universal Declaration was adopted in 1948, an elaborate apparatus of international and regional human rights treaties, declarations and institutions has enmeshed relations between states, and whatever their actual practice, states can no longer credibly argue that their internal affairs are, in principle, entirely only their own business. During the Cold War, the US and the Soviet Union validated their policies by opposing ideas of universal norms. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, only one definition of the universal seemed to be left-standing. Now, only the exceptionally obtuse would cling to a false framework that is demonstrably false. But all I have just described is is not demonstrably false, only partially and contingently true. And this is a more subtle concept and therefore a more difficult concept to grasp. Any idea that is only partially and contingently true is an intellectual shapeshifter. What is true and what is not true is in flux, and thus elusive, particularly when there are no clear or attractive alternatives. The brief post-cold war American unipolar moment has now passed. Europe lacks the power to force acceptance of its ideas, which in Europe's present predicaments are, in any case, not particularly appealing, even to many Europeans. Post-Soviet Russia seems to have reverted to an older idea, that of the great 19th century Russian philosopher Peter Chadev, who said of his country, and I quote, We never went with other peoples, end quote. China is not interested in promoting any idea of the universal, as argued in an earlier lecture, not interested in promoting any idea of the universal except its own intrinsic superiority as a normative value, and that primarily in East Asia where it is contested. India may accept Western universal values, but I think only with regard to some of its internal arrangements, and not as an overriding international authority. I could go on, but there are also more fundamental conceptual problems with the notion of universality. The idea that runs through the work of Isaiah Berlin, a liberal British political philosopher who deserves to be more widely read and understood than he is today. The, work that runs, the idea that runs through the work of Isaiah Berlin is that there is not one good, but many goods. Each of which may have its own validity, but which are not necessarily reconcilable or capable of simultaneous realization. And this is an idea that many liberals seem to find hard to accept. You may have noticed that there is nothing more intolerant than a liberal in full bray in defense of liberalism, asserted somewhat self contradictorily as an absolute value. And this often leads liberals into tickets of paradox, confusion and contradiction. Examples are not hard to find. Earlier this year, some students at Yale NUS called for Ambassador Chan Heng Chee to be sacked from the school's board because they took offence at her defence of Singapore's position on LGBT rights, as Singapore's second Universal Periodic Review at the United Nations Council on Human Rights in Geneva. Curiously, it did not seem to occur to these students that the value of a liberal education is precisely to instill openness to other views, even if you do not agree with them. After the terrorist attack on Charlie Hebdo in Paris, it struck me that there was a similarity in the modes of thought of the terrorists and the cartoonists not moral equivalence in their actions, because clearly there is none, but a similarity of thought processes. Both held their values so absolutely that they thought it justified anything. Murder is wrong, but is lampooning a religion right? The fact that the terrorists had a completely mistaken view of Islam is beside the point. The point is that they believed in it, believed in it as fervently as the cartoonists, cartoonists believed in freedom of expression. I wrote an article for the Straits Times along these lines. The French ambassador took umbrage at what exactly, I'm still not quite sure. <laughs> he wrote a letter to the Straits Times to refute me. That was his right. Course. I did not find his arguments convincing and explained why in a response to his letter. But he went further and complained to my bosses about me and got his own boss to do so as well, clearly to try to shut me up. In other words, he attempted to mobilize superior force to deprive me of my freedom of expression. <laughs> the very freedom the French state, indeed all Europe, defended in the case of the cartoonists. My bosses quite properly told the Ambassador that my views are my own and if he did not agree with with them, to talk to me, to convince me of the error of my ways. He has not done so. (laughs) Now, I do not in any way blame the Ambassador for trying coercion rather than persuasion. In his position, I would have done the same. But then, I have never been accused of being a liberal.
1: <laughs>
0: and perhaps he secretly isn't a liberal too. <laughs> but these are trivial anecdotes, very trivial. But there's a serious point to them. If there is not one good, but many goods which are irreconcilable, then we must either impose our concept of the good by force, which in history has occurred all too often with very bloody consequences, or moderate our own ideas to minimize friction and seek some modus vivendi between different conceptions of the good in order to lessen the probability of conflict. As Isaiah Berlin said in his famous lecture, Two Concepts of Liberty, and I quote, Freedom for the pike is death to the minnows, the liberty of some must depend on the restraint of others." The idea of human rights is quantitatively different from the idea of a rock, or a stone, or a tree, or the idea that the earth is round. A rock is a rock, irrespective of whether or not we believe in it, and the earth remains flat, remains round, (laughs) even if we think it is flat. The idea that human rights have an autonomous reality or are somehow natural rights is, as the 19th century English philosopher Jeremy Betham famously said, Rhetorical nonsense, nonsense on stilts. Now, some legal scholars have argued that human rights are now jus cogens. Louis Henkin, who too many years ago attempted unsuccessfully to teach me about international law, Louis Henkin has, for example, argued that human rights reflect, and I quote, a new law of fundamental values adopted by the international system. But I don't see how Benham's basic point can be avoided by dressing up nonsense on stilts in lawyers' Latin. Now, this does not mean that human rights and international law can be dismissed as unimportant. What it means is that international law and human rights are, as I alluded to in passing earlier, human inventions, civilizing myths that we have decided, they have chosen to believe in so that we may at least occasionally live in a civilized manner. Faith, not objective reality. Now, the apple will always fall even if I stubbornly refuse to believe in gravity. Faith is subjective. There is no reason to assume that we will all always believe in the same thing in the same way even when we appear to do so. Violent quarrels have erupted even in monotheistic religions. Now, Although the idea that humans have rights of some sort has won general acceptance, more specific rights are still essentially contested concepts, where superficial agreement, sometimes no more than agreement over vocabulary, masks deep conflicts over interpretation and implementation. This is true even with something as basic as the right to life, where there is fundamental and visceral disagreement over capital punishment, mandated by Sharia law, and abortion, which some Christians equate with murder. Now, If life itself can be disputed, how much real agreement over the ever-expanding range of other ideas claimed as rights can we realistically expect? Advocates argue that human rights are aspirational global norms. I do not disagree. But that does not get around Isaiah Berlin's insight into the plurality of values and the essential contested nature of many rights held up as aspirations. And failure to recognize these realities leads either to a mindless formalism, a numbers game of encouraging states to sign human rights instruments that they do not have the capacity or even the intention to implement, or leads back to coercion. Anyone familiar with the United Nations has witnessed the less-than-edifying spectacle of Western diplomats threatening, sometimes subtly, sometimes otherwise, but always apparently oblivious to the irony of their actions, threatening to withhold desperately needed aid from less developed countries unless they supported some human rights resolution or another. Now, I am not shocked by such behaviour. It is entirely understandable. Many a career in multilateral diplomacy has hung on a comma or a word in some obscure resolution, and some countries need to find grounds for believing that they are still world powers. These are perfectly logical and justifiable reasons for what they do, but we should not call it promoting human rights. We should not forget that the promotion of human rights and democracy is not just a high moral calling, but also an industry. In any case, when I returned from my sabbatical at the beginning of 1993, I became involved in preparation for the United Nations Conference on Human Rights that was to be held in Vienna later that year. It was intended to be a festival celebrating Western victory in the Cold War. The beginning of the 1990s was, however, a period of great potential geopolitical complication. After the Cold War, the West was drunk with hubris. China was beginning to take off, and freed of the imperatives and constraints of their de facto anti-Soviet alliance, the US and China were beginning to eye each other warily, particularly after the Tiananmen Incident. President Bill Clinton had been elected in 1993. The Democrats had been out of power for two decades, except for the atypical four years of the Carter administration that even Democrats seemed eager to forget. Clinton had accused his predecessor of coddling dictators, and an inexperienced administration seemed somewhat more than merely inclined to take a harder line with China and give human rights and democracy promotion a more prominent role in US-China relations. But these were issues on which the Chinese Communist Party would never compromise. The potential for trouble in US-China relations seemed great, and if trouble broke out, it would have rocked our entire region. Our memories of the Hendrickson affair were also still fresh and I hope my younger colleagues have not entirely forgotten about it. And the new Democrat administration did not know Singapore or the region as well as the Republicans. The Asia specialists in the new administration, who did know us very well, did not appear to be the most influential voices in its inner councils. And this was the context of what came to be known as the Asian Values Debate which was really more about geopolitics than values of any description. The goals of the debate were modest, to encourage a more complex and realistic view of political developments in East Asia, and buy some time for the passions of a new administration to cool, and common sense and the imperatives of real politics to prevail. But it made for a fraught run-up to the Vienna Conference, more fraught than I thought at that time. An Asian group preparatory meeting for the Vienna Conference was held in Bangkok in April 1993. Prior to the meeting, a friend in the US Embassy in Singapore had taken me aside and rather cryptically sounded a cautionary note about the American diplomat who had been assigned by the State Department in Washington to observe the meeting. She was, he vaguely intimated, inclined to ingratiate herself with the new administration and so I should make a special effort to keep her thoroughly briefed. It is one of the minor regrets of my career that I did not take his advice seriously enough. But it would in any case have been difficult to take his advice because I never set eyes on the lady. God only knows where she was, how she got the information and what she reported. My regret is minor because I doubt it would have made much difference if I had made more of an effort to track her down. I later heard she had been given a junior ambassadorial appointment sometime after she returned from Bangkok. The Bangkok meeting was split on the core issue of the universality or otherwise of human rights and democracy. The basic division was between the more Western-oriented members of the Asian group, such as Japan and South Korea, who were clearly and reluctantly under instructions to act as American proxies, and countries like Iran and China, on the other hand. The majority, including Singapore, were somewhere in between. The final compromise was contained in Article 8 of the Bangkok Declaration that reads as follows, and I quote, Ministers and representatives of Asian governments recognize that while human rights are universal in nature, they must be considered in the context of a dynamic and evolving process of international norm setting, bearing in mind the significance of national and regional particularities and various historical, cultural and religious backgrounds. End of quote. Now, This was taken as a challenge to the Western idea of universality, and provoked, provoked a storm of controversy after Bangkok and at Vienna. I confess to having played a role in suggesting the idea and drafting the language of Article 8. The controversy bewildered me then and baffles me still. My approach was historical, and the text was intended to be, and I still think is, no more than a straightforward statement of fact. All norms evolve. How we conceive of, say, women's rights or LGBT rights, 50 or 20 or just 10 years ago, is not how we conceive of them now, and we will not conceive of them in the same way 100 years hence. The evolution of rights and political systems must necessarily be conditioned by responses to specific events and issues including, among other things, history, culture and religion. And our understanding of these and many other factors also evolves over time. There is no reason to expect that the evolution of rights must necessarily be teleological or a quiggish story of ever-avancing progress up and up and on and on. And It is with a tad, just a little bit, or schadenfreude, that I watch the EU and Australia struggle with refugees today. Singapore was once roundly criticized by these countries for defying what they maintained was established international law on the rights of refugees by not recognizing an automatic right to asylum and taking a tough stand to deter Vietnamese boat people from seeking shelter here. I do not think that the problems Europe and Australia today face can be managed within existing the existing framework of international law on refugee rights which was established in 1951 quite a long time ago essentially to deal with displaced persons mainly of European origin after the second world war. The magnitude The causes and the quality of refugee flows are today entirely different. The 1951 UN Convention on Refugees and its 1967 Protocol are obsolete. But it is extremely unlikely that the domestic politics of key countries will allow these instruments to be updated in any way that will allow them to provide an adequate international legal framework for managing contemporary refugee flows. Consequently, countries will do what they must. Australia has already changed that and adopted refugee policies harsher than we ever did. Last year, the Human Rights Council criticized Australia for breaking international law. I think Europe will eventually have to do so too. It will be far more difficult for the EU and its Member States to make adjustments because the refugee crisis confronts Europe with existential questions about itself and Member States are divided on what adjustments to make. The EU is now desperately trying every other expedient to avoid having to face the issue squarely. But reality cannot be evaded forever. As Mr Lee Kuan Yew once said, apropos the Vietnamese book people, You have to grow calluses on your heart or bleed to death. And the refugee crisis in Europe is a vivid example of value pluralism and how different conceptions of the good are not necessarily always reconcilable. It is good to abide by international law. It is good to take care of refugees. It is good to ensure that one's own citizens feel secure and comfortable in their own countries. Can all these three goods be simultaneously uh, realized? I doubt it. I must stress, however, that Value Pluralism, which is what I have been talking about, is not the same thing as Value Relativity. Although these concepts are sometimes confused, they are in fact diametrically opposed, because Value Pluralism implies no hierarchy of values, whereas some notion of hierarchy is implicit in the idea of relativity. And it is precisely because value pluralism assumes no hierarchy, no hierarchy, that conflicts of values arise. And when such conflicts arise, the process by which states try to reconcile them, or at least reach a Moses vivendi between differing conceptions of the good is a political process. Last year, at a conference in Switzerland, I listened to Mario Monti, the former Prime Minister of Italy and former EU Commissioner, admit that the root cause of the refugee crisis in Europe was failure in the domestic politics of EU Member States. He argued that while EU institutions worked reasonably well, you know, the overall EU institution worked reasonably well. The idea of Europe was too abstract for the peoples of Member States to understand, and consequently their politics were driven by short-term considerations. I think Mr. Monty's analysis was correct, but he didn't go far enough. The EU's idea of Europe is utopian and unsustainable. I said so in my first lecture and one is even tempted to call it the Soviet Union with human rights. But of course that would be terribly unkind and I shall not call it that. (laughs) The divergence between the ideals of the EU elite and their peoples has led to the rise of anti-EU, anti-migrant and in some cases anti-Semitic right-wing movements. Much the same phenomenon is present in the US, The outrageous comments Donald Trump has made on women and minorities taps into the anger of his white working-class base who feel culturally as well as economically insecure because a once-familiar America, perhaps an imagined America but nevertheless real in their own minds, had been stolen from them by liberal elites and mainstream political leaders who have promoted women's rights, gay rights and the rights of minorities and migrant workers. That the President is African-American does not help either. When the gap between what elites consider desirable and the general public considers comfortable grows too wide, democratic politics becomes dysfunctional. and It is a lesson we should think about in Singapore too. In the 21st century, a more fundamental structural structural contradiction may be de- developing between the ideas of democracy and the idea of human rights. Democracy is a protean term. Western liberal democracy is one historical variant, and even that variant has changed over time and will continue to change. But what all variants of democracy have in common, is the idea that first emerged in Europe at the end of the 17th century and gathered forth during the 18th century, that sovereignty, sovereignty resides in and derives from the will of the people, rather than divine right, the mandate of heaven, or bloodline, or some other principle. This idea established itself as the dominant legitimating idea during the 19th century. And today, all political systems, except for a handful mainly in the Middle East, legitimate themselves by this general principle. During the 20th century, three models of mass politics based on this idea emerged. Western liberal democracy, fascism, and communist people's democracy. All three still exist, even fascism, in the thankfully much attenuated form of extreme right wing movements. Now, one may have a preference for one model or another, but all share the same intellectual roots, and it is ahistorical and pretentious to claim a superior legitimacy or unquestionable universality for one or another. So, sovereignty resides in the will of the people. But who are the people? The meaning of the phrase is not stable. It steadily expanded during the course of the 20th century. But the idea of the people is now being deconstructed by the centrifugal forces unleashed by the collision of this 18th century political philosophy with 21st century communications technology in the form of the Internet and social media. Moreover, the people today claim or have claims made on their behalf by self-appointed activists whose visions and concerns are generally rather narrow, claim an ever-expanding slew of rights and claim them in an ever-more absolutist manner, a process again accentuated by the Internet which has also enabled the idea of the people to escape the boundaries of the nation-state. And all these forces are loosening, perhaps irrevocably, the sense of national community, the sense of national solidarity that I think is essential to democracy. Politics is fragmenting, making government and the pursuit of coherent public policies, more difficult everywhere. In my darker moments, which is most of the time, <laughs> I wonder whether the rigidities of ideological faith have caused the technologies that, are the, that were the fruits of human ingenuity to far outpace the capacity of human ingenuity to adapt our political and social institutions to deal with them. We cannot abandon the technologies. The answer cannot be just more faith in human ingenuity. Faith is nothing but hope, which might well prove forlorn. Now, Western confidence in the superiority of its model was based on the link between its political processes and the superior outcomes those processes produced, particularly economic outcomes. China's growth challenges confidence in that link at a time when the link is already looking shaky. But China is no real alternative. In Europe and the US, political dysfunctionalities are more advanced. Nevertheless, as I argued in my second lecture, we are all Western in some sense now, and no country in any region is entirely spared. Since the communist system developed from the same 18th century political philosophy, and China cannot insulate itself from 21st century communications technologies, China too suffers from its own strain of this global disease. and Insecurity is the cause of the overly assertive Chinese nationalism which I have been talking about in previous lectures. And this Chinese strain of the disease may prove equally resistant to treatment. Political dysfunctionalities are not going to be resolved by trying to delink the political process from outcomes to to the now fashionable but rather bloodless concept of governance, as if valid universal principles of public policy can be somehow neatly abstracted from an increasingly messy and diverse political reality. Public policy is not some platonic ideal stored up in heaven waiting to be discovered by the contemplation of superior minds, serenely detached from the hurly-burly of events. A policy that cannot be sold politically is no policy. If some principles are truly universal, the commonalities exist only at such a high level of generality that they have little practical relevance. As guides to how different societies and cultures should actually govern or organize themselves. One Charles S. Mayer, a distinguished historian of the modern state, called governance, and I quote, the utopia of the masters of public policy. A thought that the school under whose auspices these lectures are being held and the precious sort of civil servant would do well to bear in mind. You sure, you heard that, huh? <laughs> now, while writing this, this lecture, I came across a commentary in the Financial Times of 20th April, a few days ago, which described Europe and North America as suffering from what the author termed sophisticated state failure. This, he argued, fuels the Donald Trump and Marine Le Pen insurgencies and endangers the ability of advanced societies to secure a bright future for their citizens." Sophisticated state failure occurs when, as he said, by and large everything works as it should in mature democracies, and yet where little actually gets done, including economic reforms that everyone acknowledges are necessary, because governing is very difficult, voters are fickle, Majorities are unstable, and hence, politicians unwilling to take risks. This sets up, and and this is my paraphrase of the author's argument, a vicious cycle of increasingly frustrated voters disillusioned with the political process. Now The author called it, and I quote, a cancer eating away at societies in the West and undermining the liberal world order. The author, who by the way I think was German, Who is the director of Carnegie Europe? Had observed much the same dysfunctionalities as I did. But what was his solution? His solution was as follows, and I quote The only lasting way out of sophisticated state failure is for responsible politicians to worry less about getting re elected and to start risking their political careers for things that need to be done, end quote. Now, this advice, this is advice that only a desperate intellectual would give, and only angels in heaven would take. (laughs) Mrs. Merkel might be an angel in heaven, and politically she will be one soon, I think. (laughs) Now, failure to free oneself of the shackles of the false framework of universality leads to such tautological so-called solutions. A better, in my view at least, a better if partial answer is to take a practical and not ideological approach to human rights and democracy, to hold our beliefs in these values loosely, contingently and transactionally. Human rights and democracy are not just desirable ends in themselves, but also means that should be evaluated and implemented on the basis of their utility. Any good idea taken to extremes, becomes absurd, or becomes self-defeating, or both. In December last year, the New York Times reported that one of those responsible for the terrorist attacks in Paris earlier that month may have escaped arrest in Brussels because of a law banning police raids on private houses between 9pm and 5 a.m. Presumably, these are the hours that criminals work. <laughs> <laughs> Human rights have historically been rights held by the individual against an overly powerful state. Democracy, a means of taming Leviathan. But what if Leviathan is now metamorphosizing into Gulliver, held down by myriad silken trades of rights? Now, men of goodwill believe that education and dialogue would enable us to to arrive at a consensus between different conceptions of the good, if not consensus, at least peaceful coexistence or common space. But those inclined to participate in such dialogues and those inclined to respond to education are usually those who are already inclined to seek common ground or coexistence and hence those who are least in need of education or dialogue. Consensus and common space are, in any case, always tentative and in constant renegotiation. And it is the fundamental purpose of politics and government to hold the ring as neutral arbiter and to maintain whatever consensus or common space may pertain at any point of time, if necessary, by the exercise of the coercive powers that are the legitimate monopoly of the state including the preemptive or prophylactic exercise of such powers this is a particularly urgent function of the state at a time when few countries are homogeneous when multiculturalism frowns upon attempts to homogenize a country and identity politics is spreading now when conflicts of, violent, uh, of values, when conflicts of values lead to violence, as it did as they did during the attack on Charlie Hebdo, it is because of state failure, because the state was lulled into complacency or hamstrung by its own ideology, because the state was too weak or too timid to take decisive action or because the State was unable to resist the temptation to seek political advantage by privileging one group or, or system of values over another. And in case you think I am being unduly smug about the situation in the West, let me remind you that we need not look very far from our own borders to find examples of such situations existing or developing, just look North or South. We can find examples of groups seeking special privilege for their values, thankfully as yet without success, even within Singapore's own borders. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. I am not arguing that the traditional concept of rights as rights held against, by the individual against the State has become unimportant. It is still important. But that concept of rights is at best only a partial answer to the perennial problem of balancing justice with order. Order requires justice, but there can be no justice without order, which must include a minimal societal consensus and a functioning political process. Because justice is itself a contested concept, and since what one group sees as just, Another group may regard as an intolerable tyranny, there must be some means of adjudicating between different conceptions of the just. Now, Every country must find its own balance in the context of its own particular circumstances. Democracy is a self-indigenizing concept, greatly influenced by the terror in which it is planted. This also makes it extremely difficult to impose any particular variant of democracy from the outside. Once any balance is disrupted by internal-external forces pushing too far or too quickly in one direction or another, it can be extremely difficult to restore a sensible equilibrium. President Obama's election can be seen as an attempt to restore balance to the American system after the post-9-11 excesses of the neoconservatives. I am not confident that he has yet succeeded. Now, ladies and gentlemen, some of you may consider that I have strayed too far into the abstract, but I thought it important to expose some of the conceptual difficulties, some of the conceptual complexities of the ideas of human rights and democracy that do not often enough see daylight. Democracy, human rights, well these are not magical incantations that, when uttered, make all problems vanish. They are important, but contested and sometimes internally contradictory concepts that may create new problems, even if they solve others. And understanding the concepts better makes understanding the concepts better makes it more likely that we can assess them clinically implement them practically, and not unthinkingly fall under their trial. Ideological blinkers have led, us, have led to deficits of political leadership in major countries that exacerbate the uncertainties of the post Cold War international relations. And since these leadership failures are not just the results of the deficiencies of individuals, but have structural and conceptual causes, we will have to suffer them for a long time to come. In my previous lectures, I briefly sketched some examples of how false frameworks have led to geopolitical complications. The knots that Europe has tied itself into, failure to anticipate Moscow's response to the factless attempt to draw Ukraine, Ukraine away from Russia, the disastrous interventions in the Middle East and North Africa and the idea that economic reform must lead to political reform, that is the root of the strategic mistrust that complicates US-China relations. What all these examples have in common is the cardinal sin of foreign policy, and that cardinal sin is wishful thinking, mistaking hopes for reality. The effects of wishful thinking are not confined to the immediate regions where the error occurs, are unpredictable and can linger long after the error was committed. The descent of Iraq and later Libya and Syria into chaos after Western interventions, these countries cannot be put together again and exist only as names and flags, did not initiate initiate, but almost certainly accelerated and accentuated the influence of Middle Eastern varieties of Islam sectarian tensions and terrorist ideologies on Southeast Asian Muslims. This has changed the texture of Muslim communities in Southeast Asia, and hence their relationship between Muslims and non-Muslims in the plural societies of Southeast Asia. The consequences will be difficult to manage and will unfold for many years, perhaps decades to come. The ill-considered American intervention in Iraq elevated Iran's regional position, shook Saudi Arabia's confidence in the US, promoted an apocryphically existential view of Sunni-Shia competition, which is a proxy for geopolitical fears of Iran, and has led Riyadh into policies in Yemen and elsewhere that may well undermine what stability, including its own, that remains in the Middle East with possible further consequences for our own region. The Middle East distracted the U.S. from responding effectively for a critical decade when China was consolidating its position in Southeast Asia and trying to shape the regional architecture to its advantage. It was only at the very end of the George W. Bush administration that the U.S. began to be persuaded that the game was worth the candle and the US has been playing catch-up ever since. The Western response to the so-called Arab spring. Arab spring, the very choice of metaphor, illustrates the depth of wishful thinking. Summer inevitably follows spring, and Arab summers are notoriously hot. The Western response to the Arab Spring compounded the effects of American distraction. Within the space of a mere week, the U.S. went from standing by Mubarak as a staunch 30-year ally to refusing him a dignified exit from power and unceremoniously dumping him. By comparison, the Hendrickson affair was very small beer. Mubarak's treatment recalled the U.S. treatment of Suharto, another 30-year friend in 1998. And both the treatment of Mubarak and Swato was starkly different from how the U.S. had arranged safe passage to Hawaii when Marcos fell. This raised doubts about the reliability of U.S. commitments at a time when China was emphasizing its inescapable geographic reality to ASEAN. And despite President Obama's attempts to rebalance U.S. attention, the now more than usually turbulent Middle East will be a continuing distraction for his successors. Ladies and gentlemen, I could go on multiplying examples, but there is no need to belabor the point. It is not my argument that the myth of universality was the only cause of these and other blunders. No country ever looks at the world only through a single lens. No country can pursue policies that are perfectly consistent with any principle. But the distortions of the myth of universality have, in my view, had a particularly deleterious effect, post-Cold War. We should not underestimate the enduring power of its attraction. It is a mode of thought that I think originates in the monotheistic Christian traditions that are the foundations of even the most secular of Western societies, And it is so deeply a part of the Western worldview and sense of self that nothing as mundane as empirical evidence of error can loosen its hold on the Western imagination. If today the US again focuses less, and it does, focuses less on what it considers the inadequacies of political systems in Southeast Asia, this is perhaps due more to the imperative of dealing with US China competition and terror. And any genuine change of mind. As it did during the Cold War, I think the U.S. has only decided to bide its time. Nor are American dogmas the only ones to reckon with. American ideology may be disciplined by strategic realities. But Europe plays no significant strategic role in our region, and therefore can afford the luxury of assuming moralistic postures. Not long before I retired, it was my not entirely uncongenial duty to take to task a European diplomat who had crossed the boundary of acceptable diplomatic practice in his dealings with our opposition. No, no, it wasn't the French ambassador. This was an experienced diplomat who knew full well that there was a difference between cultivating the opposition to gather information, This is acceptable diplomatic practice, and our diplomats do so too. A difference between cultivating the opposition to gather information and actively encouraging the opposition. And he did so entirely conscious that he was crossing a boundary. He chanced his hand hoping that we would not notice. But we did notice. After our last general election, it was reported to me that some other European diplomats, different countries, were grumbling because the natives that's us huh, by the way <laughs> because the natives were not wise enough to vote in accordance with their preferences. But well, why should we? As I said in an earlier lecture, but as I said in an earlier lecture, it seems very difficult for the white man to lay down his burden. We have to understand the myth of universality because it is one of the many uncertainties domestic and international, that we will have to manage for the foreseeable future. Ladies and gentlemen, we are almost at the end of this long drawn-out torture that it pleases the Institute of Policy Studies and the Lee Kuan Yew School to call the IPS Northern Lectures. My final lecture next month will examine how Singapore is affected by the broad post-cold war international trends this and previous lectures have described, whether we can cope and what we will need to do in order to cope. Thank you for once again listening to me so patiently. Thank you.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, I feel privileged to have been asked to moderate this session by such an illustrious speaker like Bilahari Kausika. They took two points I want to make about Bilahari before we open it to the house. One is that the word diplomat needs to be redefined when reference to him.
0: Possibly your understanding of the term may be wrong.
2: <laughs> yes, most things have got several meanings. Huh? The second point I wanted to say was this, that Singapore has this rather inexplicable um, policy of retiring young, able, brilliant young people uh, when they are still in the prime of their life. Now, in the case of Bilhari and there are others as well, they refused to be put to pasture and they have come out with articles and articulated their views on, on the platform, on the uh, through the newspapers. And this has benefited Singapore a great deal in its, its, the thinking process of how the country is uh, being governed, how the country is growing and so sort on. Of so I think he has done us a service. Now these comments are not, the, the inference should not be that uh, these mildly complimentary uh, remarks it means that I agree with everything that Bilhari says.
0: Never agree with anybody.
2: <laughs> It'll be good not to interrupt the moderator. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: But uh, I'm not here to debate him, debate with him. But I'm here as a traffic policeman to regulate the traffic. <laughs> So I will now open it to the house, but I could carry on. You know, it's very, very difficult to detach an Indian from a microphone, (laughs) but I will resist the temptation, and I will open it to the house. Some simple rules, please state your name, and if you are representing some organization or the the university, please mention that. Keep your comments short, questions one at a time, so that as many people as possible can be accommodated within the 45 minutes or now less because he talked more than in one hour. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, please, open the house. You have answered all questions, Billari. Nobody wants to ask. Well, let's go,
0: and have
2: a drink. <laughs> Don't be afraid of him, you know. Is more bark than bite, him? Eh? <laughs> yes.
4: Yes. So uh, my name is Kevin Yao. I represent nobody other than myself. Uh, the question I'd like to ask, right here, is uh, if one is not a signatory to a particular convention and one acts in a fashion that they say uh, diametrically opposed to the uh, convention, does that one does that make one? Uh, in breach of international law what exactly is international law and w- how can one be in breach of it when one conducts oneself in a fashion that one that has not signed up to
0: well you raise a very important question international law as i said in passing is not for uh, me is not here okay <laughs> uh, neither is simon chesterman right oh but um,
2: Summitation. Summitation.
0: All right. International law, in my view, is not an autonomous reality. It is not like a rock, a stone, or a tree. It is something we choose to believe in because it is in our interest to believe in. In other words, it is one of a range of instruments available to a state to advance its national interest. I think you were alluding to the Refugee Convention. Were you, yes. were you not? Yes. Uh, yes. Now, the fact that we were or were not a signatory was irrelevant to those who criticised us. They mobilised international law because they believed it was in their interest to get us and other countries of Southeast Asia to take as many of these refugee boat people as possible so these people would not reach their shores. So it was an instrumental use of international law and that is precisely why now kind as I may be in my heart, when I look at what's happening, I feel a little bit of schadenfreude. Just a little bit.
2: The gentleman at the back.
5: Thank you, Ambassador, for your uh, insightful thoughts. And i uh, have always been uh, enlightened and also much entertained. Uh, I'd like to just ask a question. Who are you? Uh, I'm David from uh, RSIS. Okay. Okay. I just like to ask uh, two questions. One is that, uh, what do you think about ends and means in uh, human rights? For example, when the US um, uh, ignoring international law again, you know, and in the case of a gross travesty in Kosovo 1999, to uh, perhaps also in defense of their own interests, you know, they went into and. conducted some bombing to help the uh, Muslims there another question is that for a small state like us um, what do you think our stance should be perhaps like in the case of the Romanian ambassador case that time when also Sorry, what, what case Romanian Romanian ambassador case, oh, okay when there was a, also a travesty of human rights not uh-huh. a few people were killed and what what do you think we should act should we be more forceful if a more serious case in the future happens? Thank you very much.
0: Well, to the answer to my, your first question refers to the answer to the first question. International law is an instrument. Some states use it when it suits them. It, they don't use it when it doesn't suit them. As a small state, we say generally, a world governed by international law, international rules is in our interest, and that's of course true. Yep. But is this really such a world? At best, only occasionally. The Romanian diplomat's case, well we are not going to go and invade Romania you know, and <laughs> declare war against Romania because of this guy uh, as unsavory a character though he may have been, but we did quite a lot. We put a lot of pressure on Romania and by from other EU states on Romania to ensure this guy was hounded and harried and he could not find any safe refuge and in fact he was put to trial, the trial was reasonably fair, he was bankrupted in the, in the course of the trial, so I was made to understand, and he died in jail. Uh, and it's not something I lose any sleep about. So in this case, some form, if not justice of revenge, was ext- extracted. How? By holding the EU, To the ideals it said it did by Romania is a member of EU so we told Romania and the other EU countries you have to you believe in rule of law and this you go around the world lecturing on it please apply in this case and we are watching you we sent people from our AGC and our ambassador in Brussels to every stage of the trial to keep a watch to report we made sure our newspapers were kept informed so if there was any deviation we would make sure there was a lot of egg on the collective face of the EU. And I think the EU ambassadors here knew us and knew me in particular well enough to know that we would done it and they put some pressure on Romania and the guy died in jail and good riddance. (laughs) Yes Simon
4: Um, Simon Tsie, I'm the chairman of the Singapore Institute of International Affairs and a professor at the Faculty of Law. I shall disappoint Bilahari by agreeing with him about the instrumentality of international law. I will congratulate him on his trickery. You know, you mentioned how you're practical, pragmatic, but you'll be, be talking in such conceptual ways. So I think that many people have been struggling to you know, digest and debate you. Well, that so was I mean, my intention. I th- that's what I thought. <laughs> So let me bring us down a bit uh, uh, you know, from the airy heights of concepts uh. to a practical problem that's going to come up in the next few months in which human rights may be one part of the equation and uh. it will test our of universality. This is about the Rohingya state people, Muslims or Rohingya, as some people uh. call them. When the season comes, there will be again uh, uh, exodus, popular people. No. So you know, uh, how do we think about it? I mean, your earlier question about the law is very clear. We're not bound. On an ASEAN basis, how would you think uh, uh, to deal with it, and what level would human rights play in it? And of course, not just within ASEAN, but the perhaps inflated expectations of others.
0: Very good question. But before I answer it, I will try to answer it. Before I answer it, I must remind you I am a pensioner. (laughs) A pensioner's answer. I don't know what ASEAN is going to do the next season. But I can tell you what ASEAN did the last season, because then I was not a pensioner and I witnessed it, uh, at first hand. First of all, there was no ASEAN country that really wanted to take any of them, for much the same reasons as we refused to take Vietnamese boat people. They said it was raised in ASEAN circles. It is true that the word Rohingya was uttered a few times when ASEAN met, and therefore we were not entirely unjustifiably unjustified in putting it into the statements. And it is true that some ASEAN foreign ministers made trips well publicized to Rahan State, but that's as far as it went. I think Indonesia and Malaysia were ultimately compelled, I think, compelled by their domestic politics to take some rohingyas and they took it on the basis of guarantees by the UNHCR that resettlement would be found for them but i know this is pure domestic politics because those those guarantees by the UNHCR are worth nothing the UNHCR cannot guarantee resettlement only sovereign states can guarantee resettlement and all sovereign states while very loud in you know Proclaiming their sympathy for the for these poor people. Not one of them volunteered to take substantial numbers of them. Not Europe, you know, maybe that's understandable, they have the hands full. None of the Arab states, these are fellow Muslims. So why should Southeast Asia be different? Now, based on their experience, I do not expect anything different to happen next season. And you know the answer already, last <laughs> time.
2: Yes, the lady at the back. I, no,
0: no, she's a usher. At the oh, <laughs> <laughs> but you can ask a question too, no, if you like.
2: <laughs> can you show you have. Oh, sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah.
6: My name is Kalinga, and I'm a journalist and uh, communications lecturer. Um, I would like to raise the issue of uh, migrant labour, especially in the ASEAN context, yeah. uh, because uh, uh, there are certain human rights issues involved in this uh, migrant labour, because all ASEAN countries te- tend to be involved in it, either as receiving it's or awesome. sending countries. Uh, now, one of the areas, uh, I have written on it a number of times, uh,
0: which publication it's, do you work for? Sorry, it's OCS. overseas OCS still got a name, right? <laughs>
6: okay, uh, I write for Enterprise what? Service. Uh, what? IPS. Uh, I, oh, I know, uh, not, I know not it. Not this IPS. No, I, I know, I know which IPS. I know it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah.
6: <laughs> okay. uh, yeah. Now, um, on this, um, the ASEAN has got a. Uh, I understand a few years ago, uh, uh, human rights uh, convention which, uh, which yeah. was adopted. Um, the recruitment agencies tend to uh, charge uh, these
0: fees, laborer,
6: laborers uh, uh, sometimes they work for uh, six months, eight months, one year without any pay and they have a hefty uh, uh, charges uh, called placement fees which are illegal under various laws in different countries. Now, once I asked a former Secretary General of ASEAN why cannot uh, ASEAN come up with a migrant a migration treaty, labour migration treaty under the Human Rights Convention of ASEAN. He said it will never happen because uh, uh, some countries get cheap labour and other countries get remittances and no government wants to talk about it. Now how can you, because it could be a win-win situation where uh, the countries which have uh, labour shortages get labour and also cheap, cheaper labour and then the countries who send them get the remittances which help their um, foreign, research, foreign exchange. I got you. So how do you,
0: how, well, the how do you so, see it? The short answer is you can't, because the Secretary General, whether who he was, I mean, was he Ong King Yong? No, not him. <laughs> <laughs> there is, in ASEAN, a fundamental difference between the interest of sending countries and the interest of receiving countries. That is a circle that is not going to be squared in any satisfactory way. All you can do is to ensure that if you are receiving country as you are, you try to ensure that the people you receive are treated in a fairly decent way. And I think we do. I mean, not perfectly here, we can certainly do better, but you have to treat them. You, if you are waiting for an uh, ASEAN-wide thing, ASEAN-wide instrument or uh, an agreement, you are not going to get it, for precisely the reason the Secretary-General, whoever he is, maybe in Surin, in an unusually clear moment of thought, <laughs> uh, uh, told you. And that's not going to change. In ASEAN, they are sending countries, they are receiving countries, that's not going to change. So all you can do is to hope that both the sending countries and the receiving countries, within their own national frameworks, treat these people, whether they are sent out or received, in a fairly decent manner. That's all you
2: can do. Somebody else had a hand? show you had a hand up? Yeah. No? He had a foot. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else? Okay. Yes, yes.
0: Oh, there's a lady down there. Yeah, there's a lady, yeah. Since you had one letter first, huh?
2: I noticed one thing. When Bilhari was talking, more ladies laughed at him. <laughs> <laughs> not that ladies <laughs> always laugh at me, I don't know why. <laughs> so it's good to have a lady ask the question. Laugh
0: with, not at.
2: No. Sorry? I, I I chose the word correctly, I thought, you know. <laughs> For your generation maybe la <laughs>
7: Fictions need to be maintained for a reason. All right. Um, anyway, I understand you're uh, you're an ambassador. So you have been talking about international relations. And in that part of the field, I'm Zen. Can you I yourself I uh, represent myself only, yes? What? Can Sorry? You? I Inter- represent myself. I am Zen. Hi.
0: Zen. Did you said representative or something? Yes. Zen representing I? myself only. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. Sorry. So I'm not very clear.
7: Them. In the field of international relations, um, Singapore, as one of many countries, is in a subject relationship with larger global structures, and those are what we navigate. So that's why we reject this universality, as I understand. But ironically, in the, in the role of a country, the government is the one that enforces the universality. So, um, within state borders, this universality, if I understand, is legitima- legitimized by state force, and I think the voters mandate. So, what then do you think of the perhaps risky use of voter pressure? to adjust the state's attitudes and methods? Voter voter pressure. pressure. What do you think about the perhaps risky use of voter pressure to To perhaps modify the state's attitudes and methods?
0: Well, I think you are absolutely correct. The idea of universality can only be imposed by predominant power. And in the international system, there is no longer that predominant power. There was. If it was, it was only for a very short period after the end of the Cold War. Now it is a contested concept internationally. Within the state boundaries, one idea of what is right, what is good—you know—you can phrase it in different ways—is the idea of the government of the day. In democratic systems, they have to validate themselves by, you know, by periodic ele- elections, voter pressure. And I think that's the best we can do in this imperfect veil of tears we call the world. Right? Right? Uh, is it risky? Yeah, of course it's risky. Democracy is full of risk. It doesn't mean that because you have elections, a person with uh, ideas that are useful, or even you may be elected, I may think my, your ideas are silly, but others may think, you know, there is that inherent risk but is there a better way? There isn't. Uh, This is an imperfect world. Uh, Simon accused me of being overly abstract and conceptual. And I was, in part deliberately, but in part because I wanted to expose that these things are not as straightforward as uh, normally may be assumed. Because I thought they were quite straightforward things until I went more deeper into it myself. But I can't, I don't see that there is a better way than these periodic risks that we call elections. And the government defines things. If you have a government that is wise, it will not try to define every damn thing because that is impossible. Even in the most totalitarian of systems, it is not possible. If the government is wise, it will try to define the main parameters, it will try to create some common space and, and defend that common space, knowing full well that a different government may have a different notion of common space. Um, it a, is a more serious problem for a young country like Singapore. I have spoken about this in my first lecture in a different way, because what are our common assumptions in Singapore? There are some, I think, you know, but I think if we start debating, we will find that we each have uh, our own idea of what our common assumptions are. Whereas if we have a history of 500 years, a thousand years, there are certain things embedded in the subconscious uh, of most countries. Uh, In Southeast Asia, I think there is, in almost every Vietnamese, a subconscious assumption that we have to live with China, and resist China to maintain our identity. Huh? Uh, and they don't think about it, even. It's there. We don't have that because we're only 50 years so, old, which is nothing. You know?
7: Wait, are you so sure about that?
0: What? That we don't have it or we have it?
7: That we don't have it.
0: I think we have it. But I think what I think we have may not be the same as what you think we have. But at least you think you have think it. Have. Huh?
7: At least you think you have it.
0: Well, I hope if we survive it long, long enough, we will develop it. What it is, I cannot say right now. I can tell you what I hope it is mm-hmm. from my point of view, but that my point of view is only one. That's, that's the that's all I
7: asked for, really. What? That's simply all I asked for, really.
0: Yeah, but you know, what why, okay. why, why do you think? Do you think I'm, <laughs> I, I only believe that my, my opinion is the only one important? Listen to my t- lecture carefully. Yes, I did. So why you ask the question?
7: You've answered it long ago.
0: Huh? Thank you. No, but I don't understand. If you knew the answer, why ask the question? No,
7: no, no. Your answer was... I know why.
0: So sit down, don't no hey worry. Yo. I'm just teasing you. <laughs> yes.
2: Is she allowed to ask questions? Can I... Yes, yes.
7: Okay. I'm Jillian with IPS. <laughs> um, Ambassador, you baited us, or baited me at least. I Can... Which... Power, tell, that's not dominant today would still have its ambassador come to Singapore, cross the line, and try to encourage the development of opposition and presumably act on some kind of paradigm of a notion of democracy and human rights. You baited us. Please, are you allowed to tell us which is that power? And uh, <laughs> um, let us know, please.
0: I, I, I don't quite understand what you, you refer to an
7: ambassador who crossed the line... Oh, I'm not going to tell you that.
0: Uh, you know, I mean, i still got some diplomatic... Uh, in, the <laughs> sense, uh, in the conventional sense, instincts left. Uh. Right. Anyway, I can but tell you he's no longer in Singapore. It's not because we threw him out. He didn't do that things that bad. But his term came to an end and he left.
7: But certainly it represents a certain power that still uh, would wish to impose a certain paradigm upon
0: us. I will say this. There are certain powers that have from time to time to prove to themselves... That there are still global powers by doing things like this. If you are truly a global power, you need not do things like this.
2: So it's a British issue? <laughs>
0: no. <laughs> Lots of countries
2: think they were global powers. OK, thank you. Other questions? Yes, yes, yes please.
1: I enjoyed your, uh, your lecture. Uh, my name is Mark Nelson. I'm uh, an American citizen, uh, a New York lawyer. I also studied with Professor Hankin at Columbia and a uh, Singapore With more PR. success,
0: I'm sure, since you're
1: a lawyer. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, I want to ask you to look into the future, um, 50 years, let's say, and tell us how many democracies you think there will be in the world. I, I believe that there are about 157 today, depending on how you count which is considerably more than there were 50 years ago. And my question to you, depending on your answer, is how do you reconcile that answer with your, the thesis of your talk today, uh, that universality is a a myth? I'm assuming you're gonna say there are gonna be more democracies in 50 years.
0: No, I'm not gonna say that. I'm gonna say it depends what you mean by democracy.
1: Well, let's use the loose definition that is used today.
0: There isn't a loose definition, that's my point, because, To to me, uh, and I I am rather simplistic in my mind as Gopi will, uh, the fundamental thing that distinguishes a democracy from any other type of political system is the idea that the sovereignty resides in the people rather than is given by God, or by a particular family, or or, or by some other principle.
1: Let's just define it as a government where the people have the ability to replace their leaders from time to time, through an electoral process
0: okay then i do not know how many because i don't think there are as many as you, you i guess the number you got is from what freedom house or something like that wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> you see yeah uh, wikipedia is an intolerable tyranny these days
1: <laughs> lee kuan Yew's memoirs
0: did he say how many i don't think he gave a figure i, I, I figure. made that up no, really, I, no. okay i get your question i do not know how many democracies there are going to be in 10, 15, 20, 50, 100 years. Because the term democracy is not one that has a stable meaning. Even if you say the ability to replace your leaders, I think I would have to qualify it peacefully because I can replace the leader by shooting him in the head, which happens in many countries which still call themselves, not in this region particularly, not recently anyway, democracies. Actually, I, my, my basic point is the kind of question you ask is not a relevant question for the practical understanding of how international relations work.
1: That's either a diplomatic answer or a very lawyerly one. I'm not, I'm not sure which, but it's not very satisfying. You, life, can do, you can do better.
0: Life is not satisfying and I was not put on my earth to satisfy you. <laughs>
1: Well, as I said at the outset, thanks for the great lecture. <laughs>
3: yes. Hi, sorry, my name is uh, Kevin Matthews, just a uh, enthusiastic uh, international relations um, individual. But my, my uh, question to you, firstly, is a, a short statement. Um, so the... International slave trade, which happened during oh. for 300 years, um, international law was actually principally one of, the, one of the key reasons why it was abolished. And it was the pursuit, the, um, how could you say, the universal pursuit of human rights which actually abolished the slave trade, a 300-year-old institution. But my, my main question to you is this. <coughs> um, as we move into a new geopolitical environment, where we have more of a multipolar world. How do you see um, the uh, conditions for a global uh, human rights perspective? For example, um, President Xi Jinping came out and said that you know his view of Asia is Asia run by Asians and for Asians, and with a predominantly um, Chinese perspective in terms of how they see human rights. Now, I would just like to ask, from a geopolitical standpoint, in a multipolar world, how do you see human rights developing? Well, first, I'm not so
0: sure slavery has been abolished.
3: Well, specifically, African-American slaves um, well, taken from Africa into Well, there are many places in America. Africa,
0: Mauritania for one, where slavery still exists, although it is not called slavery. Well, Some of the things that we were talking about, about <coughs> migrant workers, is almost tantamount to slavery. Oh, ha-
3: that, that, that is absolutely not the case. Slavery, which happened during a 300-year period, was a specific systematic system um, which... Okay, one
0: ha- type of slavery may not exist, but many other kinds of slavery still exist. Uh, so well, That's a side issue. We can talk about it on the side. <coughs> now, insofar as a multipolar world develops, there will be less international consensus on what uh, constitutes, let's say, the interpretation of the Universal Declaration. This is a fact. I'm sorry, I mean, the, nobody's going to dismantle the immense apparatus of treaties, of institutions, and so on that exist. But the fact that concept, these concepts, the interpretation, implementation, is going to be more and more contested, is going to happen insofar as there is a distribution of power. Because not every country. Now, let's see who can be the major powers. Let's just take, although in my first lecture I, I, I expressed my grave skepticism that there will be a truly multipolar world in the near future. Let's just take the BRICS, right? Brazil, India, Russia, China, <coughs> South Africa. Do they have a consensus on what constitutes human rights? If they have one, is it the same as the, what the US and Europe would think of human rights? Or Japan? I don't think so. The fact is, you have to have now. I'm not saying human rights is not important, by the way. Uh, and this is my important point. You have to have an ideal. You will never reach the ideal. And the interpretation of the ideal is always going to be different and the differences are going to change over time.
3: And that is absolutely true. The ideal must always be pursued. Yeah, and but the one you be
0: ideal will also not be agreed, except in the, mo- the broadest possible sense. And Take your example. Slavery. You are perfectly right. One particular system of slavery, African slavery <coughs> of the 19th century, uh, was ended in the 19th century sometime, but others evolved. And you may not call it slavery, but in effect, it is. You go and ask those poor Myanmar fishermen. They are held for years and years on Thai boats.
3: Huh? But, but my, my point is, it was the pursuit of human rights. Yes, this universality they, of okay, ideals. My point,
0: my point is this. This is earth, not heaven, if there is a heaven. We so there know. will always be conflicts of what constitutes human rights. There will always be conflicts of what are the interpretation of things that are even considered human rights. And this is a never-ending process. There is no perfection. You seek perfection in history, it ends in tears.
3: But do you agree that the pursuit, um, it is the... Oh, no, I, I said so in idea. my lecture. You well, didn't hear. Well, thank you very much because that's all I, I, really I, I to see. To.
0: I, this You are proving the point that human rights is subject to the Rashomon phenomenon, that people don't listen to each other or they only hear what
3: they want to hear. That's yet. fine. You clarified. So that's the main thing. Thank you.
0: But are you sure you understood my clarification? <laughs> I'm not sure. Just I am not sure about the lady who I know what she is up
2: to. (laughs) Well, one last question because Lynn is watching me. She said, time's up. Yes, the young man.
8: Thank you and good evening. Uh, My name is Hao Jing. I represent myself and uh, I want to ask something regarding the European Union. So, uh, I guess in the past there were once like a bastion of uh, human rights and so on, but now uh, faced with the situation of Syrian refugees, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Uh, I believe that European, uh, the European Union, might be at risk of uh, maybe even collapse in another decade or two. Uh, right now, um, I think that governments and national leaders like Merkel and the government in Sweden are facing a lot of backlash due to uh, the refugee situation and so on. So, I want to ask. Uh, do you think the European Union will still be around in a decade? And if it is around or not around anymore, what do you think, uh, how do you think this would impact uh, human rights and uh, this universality issue uh, in future? Thanks. Well, first of
0: all, I don't think there is any issue about universality because I think it's a myth. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think you are right. I think the, the European Union's def- definition of Europe was an overly ambitious one. Uh, I think the idea that nationalism could be overcome uh, was a utopian one. I wasn't entirely facetious when I compared the the European Union to the Soviet Union. I don't know whether you're here for my first lecture because I talked about it a bit there. Because this idea that you can create a pan-European man reminded me very much of the Soviet idea that you can create a new socialist man. Uh, it didn't work. The so, um, Soviet Union was around for 70 odd years. When it collapsed, everybody suddenly became Kazakhs, Uyghurs, Belorussians, Ukrainians, and, and so on. Right? Uh, I, think if the European, I think the European Union will survive, but it will be a, a different concept of Europe. Right? Uh, uh, a humbler concept of Europe, one more in line with human nature. But I also think it's going to be a huge struggle for Europe because they will have to confront very basic questions about themselves. And that, that conversation, that internal universe, uh, European conversation has only just begun and begun in a very tentative way. Right now, with refer, reference to the refugee issue, they are trying almost every other expedient to, try, to avoid having to confront it. But they know it because you know, last year I was in Europe and I think they know it. Uh, I hope they succeed, you know, I mean, I use Europe a lot in this lecture, because it is the most fertile source of examples, because they have taken things further. Now, as to what's going to mean for a shrunken concept of Europe, well, refer to my answer to the previous answer, that a multipolar world will still have an ideal of human rights, but it will be a far more contested ideal, of human rights, uh, because different countries are going to have different conceptions of what it means. That's all. This is not. Maybe I should explain one thing before I stop talking, and uh, we can wrap this up. When I say international law, human rights are not autonomous realities. I mean these are human ideas. They are good ideas. They are ideas that should be pursued. But because they are human ideas, they they do not exist independent of our apprehensions of them, and our apprehensions will always vary. This is always going to be a bottle of water and even if Gopi thinks it's not water, if I pour it on him, he's going to get wet. <laughs> Don't worry Gopi, I won't. <laughs> it's just an example. All right? uh, the earth is round even if I sincerely believe it is flat. Human rights, concepts, political concepts are not like that. They are fundamentally different in nature. And that is a fact that people who are fervent supporters of human rights have difficulty in accepting because they generally think their definition of a concept can be must be the only possible one and that is what i don't agree thank you right,
2: thank you thank you ladies and gentlemen before i hand over to lin i just want to say thank you to ips I think it was very clever of them to organize this uh, f- series of five lectures. Uh, I hope they continue with this. Um, I did not attend the previous three lectures, but I read them because he sent several copies to you to all his friends and acquaintances. So we read them. You
0: see? read them, sure
2: <laughs> So with that, let me hand it over to Lin. Yeah, thank you, Lin.